our Bibles together tonight, and we'll go back to the book of Ezra, chapter number one, please. The first chapter in the book of Ezra. And if you're wondering a little bit about where those, that this particular book is, it is sandwiched between the book of Second Chronicles and the book of Nehemiah. Second Chronicles and Nehemiah. As we talked a little bit last week, we understand that our Bible is divided not chronologically. Uh, really at all, it's not divided chronologically. It's, it's uh, divided in order uh, of, the type of, of the type of book uh, that it is. So uh, as you open your Bible, you have five books of the law. And of course, uh, those are the books that were written by Moses. We, we sometimes refer to them as the Pentateuch, the books of the law. And then we come to 12 books of history, uh, beginning in uh, the book of Joshua and going all the way through uh, the uh, books leading up to the book of Job. And then we come to the book of Job and we have five more books of poetry. And uh, then we come to five more books of the, uh, the major prophets and then 12 books of the minor prophets. So so again, as we're, as we're studying this particular, uh, this particular book of the Bible, uh, you find it right here. You might be wondering just a little bit, okay, where, do, where would this appear in a chronological order? And to be very honest with you, if our Bible were to, uh, to appear chronologically, the book of Ezra would come towards the end of our Old Testament. Because the events that take place here are about 500 years before uh, the, the birth of Christ. And of course, you know that the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, and then there's 400 years, a 400-year period of silence in which God is not communicating to his people. Uh, and, uh, and, and so really the book of Ezra, if you're just sort of wondering, okay, where does this, where does this fit in the, in the timeline of things? Really, again, chronologically, it would be towards the end of our Old Testament. And uh, I want you to look with me, if you would, in Ezra chapter number one and verse number one. We began here last week. We're going to continue the things that we started last week. We'll do a little bit of review and then we'll jump into the rest of the message. The Bible says now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, that's interesting to me. Um, the, the first thing that a ruler does, a leader does, we would think is pretty significant, right? Um, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about a president's first 100 days in office. The first 100 days, what, what, was, what was he passionate about? You know, he campaigned on certain things. Did he fulfill his promises? Isn't it interesting that the events that take place here uh, in Ezra chapter number one, in which uh, there is a, a return that is offered to the people of God out of captivity, that that takes place in year number one of Cyrus's leadership. That's fascinating to me. Uh, that, that this is something that really, really rockets to the, you know, to the front of, of Cyrus's, you know, governing agenda. Uh, that we've got to get the people who are here that are in captivity, we've got to get them back to the nation of Israel. And of course, we'll talk just a little bit as to why that becomes such a passionate thing, uh, driving Cyrus's agenda. But it's in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. Now, here's the proclamation saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So here's the, here's the, here's the stirring of God. And what is, what is it about? 
It, it is about this. Listen, that the, the temple lies in ruins and God has commanded me, God has charged me, he has given me uh, this, uh, this passion to see the temple resurrected back to life. And, uh, and, and, and along with that, he's, he, he's given me a burning desire to send those who are of Hebrew origin, uh, to send them back to their homeland out of this period of captivity that they've been in. Uh, again, a 70-year captivity. Now, we touched on this just a little bit last week, but you have to understand uh, that, that God called a man by the name of Abram, and, 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 and really uh, significant to Abram's call is the idea that God says, I have a land for you. So this land is going to become a, a, a really key component of, the, uh, of the, the, the promise between God and Abram. And between God and the, the seed of Abram, who we know better as Abraham. And, um, and of course, you understand that as we come to the book of Ezra, the land that God had promised to the nation of Israel had, been, had, had really been dormant. No one really had lived there for 70 years. The only people that would have lived there would have been, you know, people that would have just sort of moved in squatters and, and that type of thing. The last events that had taken place in the city of Jerusalem and in the nation of Judah would have been uh, the destruction that came about as, the, uh, as a result of the Babylonian captivity. And one of the last things that they did was to destroy the walls of the city of Jerusalem and then to destroy this, this, this beautiful temple uh, that, that Solomon had, had built during the, during the height of his reign. And so as we come to the book of Ezra, the, the children of Israel have not lived in the land that is so significant for 70 years. But God had inspired the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet to write that this was all going to happen long before it occurred and, and that the length of the captivity would be 70 years. So why is Cyrus so passionate about this happening in the first year of his reign? Well, he's not passionate about it because he has this love for God. No, he, he's a pagan, heathen king. Now, that's not what's driving his passion. What's driving his passion is found in verse number one. And that is this, the spirit of the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus. And, and we understand here, as we said last week, that this return back to the promised land is much more in the mind of God than just a geographic return. This is, this is way beyond just the children of Israel changing zip codes. You know, where you live geographically is important and significant, but, uh, but that's, that's, that's not what's driving this. That, that's not what is at the heart of this. No, at the heart of this is not a geographic relocation or a geographic return. No, at the heart of this is a spiritual return. In other words, what we find here is much more than the children of Israel going back to the land. What we find here is the children of Israel reuniting with God and living life according to God's wishes and God's demands that are spelled out very clearly in the Bible. And we say, well, how do you know that? Well, the reason why they were 70 years out of the land is because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion. So what God is saying, God is saying, listen, your, your time of discipline is now over. It's sort of like when you discipline your child. We all discipline our, our children maybe differently, and I think sometimes it just depends on the age and the stage where they are. Um, and uh, I, I, I've, I've told this story before, but uh, when, uh, when, when my son was, was really, really little uh, and, uh, and that sort of thing, his sisters all wanted to sort of mother him. 
Uh, he was the, he was, there's nine years between him and our oldest. And, uh, and so they all kind of viewed him as sort of like this little baby doll. And so as he grew, they still, you know, that, that this is long ceased in our house, but they still had sort of a, a tender heart towards him, you know. Those days are gone now that he's nine years old and he gets in their, in their stuff and he drives them crazy, you know, and that sort of thing. But I can remember having times in which I would pull him into my bedroom and I would be dealing with him about something that he had done. At this point, he's, he's three, th- you know, three and a half, four, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and after, after the discipline session was over, the door would open and standing outside the door would be three little girls, all of them with their arms open going, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And he falls into their arms, he's milking it for all it's worth, you know, and I'm the bad guy here in all of this, right? But, but you understand, right, that, that discipline sessions, you know, they, they, are to, they are to have an expiration date, right? That, that we, don't, we don't dwell under, under the disciplinary measures of the authority in our lives forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So, so when God says, okay, the 70 years is up, God is saying, okay, your time of punishment, your time of chastisement, your time of discipline is over. Now it's time to come back in the land and, and let's be reunited together. Let's begin to fellowship one with another because, because my, my, my heavy hand of discipline has now been removed from you and now it's time to resume and to rebuild and really to return back to what God had called them to do. So, so all of this is, is, is what is happening, and it happens, I'll say it happens as a result of the stirring of the Lord. And can I say that the, this return, as with any return, back to God and back to right relationship with God, is always precipitated by God's stirring. Now, now as a church, I, I would think that all of us have a heartbeat, we have a passion, a burden for revival, I hope you're praying for that. I hope that's something that you're passionate about. Lord, would you send revival? But can I tell you something? Revival doesn't come because your preacher preaches better. Revival doesn't come because we invite an evangelist to spend a week with us. Revival, listen, revival comes because God begins to stir in hearts. Revival, return, returning back to right relationship with God. It is precipitated by God stirring in the hearts and lives of people. Now, now think about, think about God stirring here. The Jewish historian Josephus writes, you know, we can't be dogmatic about this because the Bible doesn't specifically state this. But the Jewish historian Josephus believes in his writing, he says that, that it's believed that Daniel, Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, what would have been would have been a, uh, a a a contemporary with this king by the name of Cyrus, and Josephus says it has always long been accepted that why Cyrus became so passionate about returning to people is because of the fact that Daniel was near him and that Daniel used the scripture. He used the writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah to say, "Look, look, Cyrus, right here, you're you're actually in this book." In fact, uh, in, in fact, we talked about this last week, but in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, the very name Cyrus is mentioned, and, and, and Isaiah lives 150 plus years prior to Cyrus ever being born. I mean, that'd be like, that'd be like George Washington writing your name down and, and saying, you know, at a certain point in time, this man, this woman is going to live, and, uh, and, and, and here's what he's going to do, and here's how God is going to use them. I would say, I would say that if he, if somebody like that were to write your name in a book somewhere, that would be something, wouldn't it? 
and, and, and to know that that person was talking. So that had to have done something in the heart of Cyrus. And, 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 and the Bible says that God did all of this, that the, that the words of Jeremiah that were spoken by him might be fulfilled. Boy, God always keeps his word, doesn't he? God always keeps his word. And we find here that we said two things last week about this stirring. We said, number one, that only God can stir up the spirit of a man. Now, when I preach, uh, I, 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 can only, I can only preach to your ears and to your eyes. You see me and you can hear me audibly. But the goal of a, of a New Testament preacher is that God gets in the message, the Spirit of God gets in the message, and that the Spirit of God takes the message directly to the heart or the spirit of a man. Because I can't do that. My only ability, my only ability is to communicate words to you. It's up to the Holy Spirit of God to take those words and to drive them deep into your heart and into the spirit of a man. So only, only God can stir up the spirit of man. But number second, number two, he said this, that God's stirring is clear and recognizable. And God communicated really, really three truths to this man by the name of Cyrus. He came to three conclusions when God had stirred his heart. And I would say that, that when God stirs the heart of a man, these three conclusions we ought to come to as well. Number one is this, God is God and I am not. Now here is, here, is this, here is this Old Testament king. He is fresh off of conquering the Babylonian Empire. Now think about this for a moment. The most powerful empire in the world, I mean the, the, the gates of iron the Bible talks about in Isaiah 45 that were impenetrable. And somehow the Persian Empire does what no man is thought to have been able or capable of doing. Now I gotta think that Cyrus is sitting on a pretty high throne at this point in time. I mean, the Persian Empire, if you study it, the book of Esther talks about it being 127 provinces. From the Middle East all the way to the nation of India, you have what is commonly known as India today. You have the Persian, I mean, it, it takes up a significant portion of the known world. And Cyrus is sitting on that throne, fresh off of conquering the Babylonian Empire. And, and yet, and yet, look what he says in verse number two. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia. He says, I'm just the king of Persia. Here it is. The Lord God of heaven. And he's saying, he's saying, I'm an earthly king. And as such, I have power and I have authority. But he's, he's recognizing, isn't he in this decree that there is a power that is beyond me. There is a power that is higher than me. There is a power that is greater than me. And how many of us, how many of us live, live our lives as like these miniature little kings? Don't we, don't we sort of live that way? Uh, we're in charge of everything. We're making all the decisions of our home. No one's going to tell me what to do. And here is, a, here is an actual king who says, I am the king of Persia, but there's a Lord God who sits in heaven above. He's above me, and he is, his power is beyond me. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, God is God, and I am not. And I got to tell you, when God stirs in a man, when God stirs in a man, he sees God for who he really is. That is, he is so much higher he is so much greater. Uh, he is so much more holy and righteous and grand and powerful than you and I will ever be. That is what the stirring of God and the spirit of a man does. But there's a second thing he says. He says in this decree, after God stirred him, he says, not only is God God and I am not, but he said, whatever power and influence I have is given to me by God. Notice, notice, the, notice that statement in verse number two. He says, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
You know, probably before this stirring, Cyrus was saying, see what I've taken? See what I've done? See what my armies have done? Let me tell you about how we, uh, how we penetrated these impenetrable walls. Let me tell you how we brought the Babylonian empire down. Let me tell you about how we've expanded our, our influence. But when God started in his heart, he was no longer talking that way, was he? Now, instead, he's saying, he's given me all of this. This is, this is merely a gift that has been given to me by God. And, and if it's a gift by God, then I'm going to be accountable for how I've stewarded this. In Isaiah 44, in verse number 28, I believe, literally when Isaiah writes the name of Cyrus, of course, he's writing on behalf of God. And here's what he calls Cyrus. He calls him my shepherd. My shepherd. If you are employed a man to be a shepherd, then you would understand, obviously, that this man is going to take care of my sheep and that there would be, a, there would be an element of accounting, right? I mean, if your shepherd led your sheep into a dangerous place and he lost 10 of them, You'd go to him and say, now, wait a minute. I've counted my sheep, and when I, when I turned them over to you, I had 100. Now I only have 90. There would be an accounting there, wouldn't there? And, and so Cyrus has, has placed himself under this idea of, listen, I am just a shepherd. I am just some, someone that God has placed in this position. He's placed in this role. That's all that I am. He has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. I didn't conquer these things for myself. I didn't claim them for myself. I didn't have anything to do with this. God did all of this. And then the third, the third statement that he gives in this decree, and I think the third thing that any man who is stirred by God comes to the realization of is, number one, God is God and I am not. Number two, whatever power and influence I have is given to me by God and therefore there will be a reckoning, there will be an accounting. But notice third, the third statement. And this is where we finished last week. That is this, I have a calling from God. I have a calling from God. Someone once said this. Someone said the two greatest days of your life are the day you were born and the day, number two, the day you figured out why it is that you were born. And I think in some respects, this was, this was the day for Cyrus. When Cyrus realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, God has placed me in this position. God has placed me in this role. And he has given me a charge. He has given me a calling. Let me ask you this question. Do you know what God has called you to do? I mean, honestly, do you know what God has called you to do? How many Christians are just sort of meandering through life? And we're just going to work every day and going home every night and trying to enjoy life and trying to, you know, fit some leisure in and trying to buy some nice things and live in some, you know, a nicer house than we lived in 10 years ago and drive a nicer car and trying to climb up the corporate ladder. That, listen, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. But do you know why God has placed you on this earth? Isn't it something? Here is Cyrus. He is a, he is a pagan king, and yet he knows exactly why God has created him. He's given me a charge. He's given me a calling. Do you know what your calling is? Wouldn't it be a shame, wouldn't it be a shame that a pagan king, a heathen king would know what his calling is and that the people of God sitting in the Cleveland Baptist Church in 2022 with a completed word of God in front of them, with the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, but we'd be no closer to knowing what the call of God is for our lives than what, than what Cyrus was as an unrepentant man until God came and spoke into his heart and into his life. Do you know, what, you know, do you know why you're here? Do you, do you know what your calling is? Uh, if, we were to, if we were to start bringing people up on the platform and you tell us, tell us, what is your calling in life? Well, some of you, you'd be running for the doors. Because <laughs> you, you don't know, you wouldn't know what to say. I don't know what God's called me to do. Figure that out. 
Figure it out. But understand this, when God stirs in the spirit of a man, oh, he knows, he knows that there, God is a calling for his life. There's something specific that God has given him to do. And here's the question, will we obey what he stirs us up about? Is God stirring in your heart and in your life? Is God stirring in the life of our church? And if he is, are you willing to obey what he tells you? Are you willing to do what he stirs you up about? Maybe, maybe, maybe God's not been doing much stirring because he already knows what our response is going to be. Oh yeah, I can come down and put the effort into stirring them up, but they're just gonna, they're just gonna quench that burning desire that I'm trying to put into their heart. They're not gonna do anything with it. They've already proven by their attitude and by their actions that they're not interested in following me and doing what my will would be for their life. Oh, may God help us be willing to obey whatever it is that he stirs us about. Then secondly, let me say this, number two, about this return. Not only is it precipitated by the stirring of God, but number two, this return is predicated upon the response of God's people. This return is predicated upon the response of God's people. So, So what I'm saying is this. Who cares if a king stands up and says, you can all go home if nobody wants to go home? Who cares if a king says, hey, you, you, go, back to the, you go back to your city and, and rebuild your temple if nobody wants to go back and rebuild the temple? Who cares if a man stands behind a pulpit of an independent Baptist church and preaches, you can have revival, you can walk with God, the presence of God can be real in your life and in your home and in your church and in your world, your community, if no one really is interested in the presence of God. See, if there's going to be a return, it is, going to be, it is going to be dependent upon God's people responding to God's stirring in their hearts and in their lives. God stirred in the heart of Cyrus, a, a, a heathen, pagan man, and he did what God led him to do. But isn't it a shame that sometimes, sometimes God stirs in the hearts of us as believers and we don't do what God tells us to do. And yet he's living inside of us. We claim to be his children, born again, redeemed, bought by the blood of the lamb, and yet we want nothing to do with what he's stirring our hearts about. Notice, notice this, this return uh, and it being predicated upon the response of God's people. I find two calls really as a part of this decree. Number one, number one is a call to identification. There's a call to identification. Look at verse number three. Here, here's part of this decree. He says, who is there among you of all his people? As I read this, I, I want to put it sort of in, 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 in 20, 22 terms, right? He, you know he's saying? He's saying, will the real Hebrew people please stand up? That's what he's saying. And why would he say something like this? You know why he's saying this? Because they've been there for 70 years. After 70 years, most of them have begun to blend in with, with Babylonian at first and now Persian culture. They've, they've set up homes. They really don't what God told them to do. Jeremiah, lose Jeremiah 20, uh, 29. God told them, hey, marry your children and Plant gardens and vineyards and build houses and because you're going to settle in for a while. They've done, they've, done, they've done exactly that. And now it's time for them to return. And, and, and first part of Cyrus's decree is this. Will the, will the real Hebrew people, will you please stand up and be identified? Uh, you, you have blended in with our culture long enough, but we know that you're not really part of us. We know that you're sojourners that are sojourning in a strange land that, that, that Babylon at first and so now Persia is not really who you are and not really part of your culture. And so will you, if you're among, if you're among us of all those people, will you identify yourselves? I'm thinking that many had grown so comfortable there as to maybe look more Babylonian and now Persian than they did Hebrew. And Cyrus's decree is an appeal for those of Hebrew origin to be identified. He's, he's asking these questions, where are you? 
Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you living? Are you, are you interested in returning back to your land? Are you interested in resuming what God has called you to do in his law and in his, in his book? This call to identification for God's people is always a reminder, isn't it? That this world is temporary. Well, this world is temporary. We, we, we live here for a time, don't we? But as God's people, we understand that we have another home, don't we? That we have another, another place that, that we're going. And, and Jesus calls us in his Sermon on the Mount to put more emphasis, more effort, more work, listen, in, into, into storing up treasure in that place than we do in this place. And we need that reminder, don't we? Because that place is unseen. We see it through the eyes of faith. Because that place is not something that you and I can tangibly touch or, or, or see or, or hear voices from that land. Uh, we, we've never been there. We, we believe it by faith through the, through the lens of scriptures. We read the Bible. We know that there's a father's house. But because we've never seen it with our own eyes and because we are, we're fleshly, physical people, you know, we, we struggle with that. We put more emphasis on the temple. And that's exactly what God's people had done. Living 70 years in, in, in Babylon, I mean, they had, they had blended into the culture. God sa- God's, God's saying to them through Cyrus, listen, where are you? Where are you? It's time for you to return home. But notice, notice, secondly, there's not only a call to identification, but there's a call to participation in verses three and four. He says, first of all, who are you? Where, where are you? What are you doing? Where are you living? Are you interested in going home? But notice, his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So the call to participation is really twofold. Cyrus lays it out. He says, here's, here's the role that you can play in this. All of you are going to have to play a role. If you're Hebrew, then you're going to play a role in this, in this return, in this revival. Here, here it is. Number one, you can play a role by going back to Jerusalem to inhabit the land and rebuild the temple. So this is, this is the challenge. that he says, he says, where are you? If God has put it in your heart, let me encourage you to sell everything you have here, pack up all of your belongings, and go back to the land that, 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 that you're from originally. Now, the number that would respond to this, for those of you that are interested, was 42,360. In the entire empire, we don't know exactly how many Jews were living there, but 42,000 rose up, at the, at the cry of, at the decree of, of Cyrus. Now others would return over, over time, but this isn't the initial return uh, back to the land of, uh, of Israel, back to the promised land that God had given and promised all the way back in Genesis 12 were 42,000 people. Now along, along with the 42,360 people were, with, were their servants and maids, which numbered 7,337. So if you're, you're doing the math, I think just, just around 50,000 people are returning back to the nation of Judah to rebuild the temple and, uh, and to resume uh, what God had given them to do and, and how God had inqu- and desired of them to live. Now, understand this. The call of God upon a life is rarely easy. That's why so, so, I so oftentimes we resist it. The things that God calls us to do are, are, are very rarely are they easy. I'm thinking to myself, God is asking them to leave their homes of 70 years. 
Some of them, some of them had never lived anywhere but Babylon. That's all they'd ever known. Oh, they had, they had heard stories about Jerusalem and Judah and the promised land. And maybe they'd had some feasts throughout, the, throughout their lifetime in which they talked about how God had given them this land and, and, and how he, God had delivered them out of the enemy's hands and, and, and that sort of thing. They, they, they'd heard the stories. But listen, this is not a day and age in which they traveled freely like we did. So God is, God is, God is calling people maybe 40, 50 years old, and all they've ever known is, is, is living in Babylon. That's it. And, and, and God is saying, I want you to leave all that you've ever known, and I want you to return. And, and then, and then returning, returning to a land that they've never been to and a land that had been desolate for 70 years, uh, that's, there, there's a lot of work there, isn't there? You know as well as I do, I came not too long ago, returned from vacation, I pulled into my yard and I pulled into my driveway, and my yard was a disaster. Literally, it looked like it looked like lions were roaming in the, like the, the, the African savanna, you know, the high grass and that sort of thing. And and uh, and I had to, you know, I had to mow the lawn and I had to get things in order. You understand when when you just when you just leave something uh, sitting there desolate without inhabitant for seventy years. I was gone for a week and a half. Can you imagine being gone for seventy years? I mean, houses would have to be rebuilt. We know that Nehemiah would eventually go back and rebuild the walls. Nobody would want to live in a city that didn't have adequate protection, and yet that's what they were being asked to do. And they're going back and rebuilding homes and rebuilding roads and reestablishing a, a form of government and, 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 and on top of that, leaving everything that they'd ever known behind. I'm just simply saying, listen, the call of God upon a life is rarely easy. It's rarely easy. Can I say that once again, we discover that in order for those to go back, in order for them to respond to this, just as God had stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, God would have to stir their hearts up as well. Look in verse number five. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So in other words, the people that would go, the 42,000, they would have to experience a similar stirring that God had stirred up in the heart of Cyrus about. In other words, in order for them to fulfill what God was wanting them to do, God was gonna to have to reveal himself to them. Hey, you're, you're to be a part of this number. Of course, 42,000 of them returned. Again, God does not ask them simply to return living there, but also not, not just to rebuild homes and walls and streets and reestablish a government and to begin to work the fields again so that they could have adequate supply of, uh, of vegetables and fruit and that sort of thing. But God also says, not only do I want you to do that, but I want you to rebuild the temple. You say, well, is that really that significant? It is a massive undertaking. In fact, in fact, now think about this. The first temple that was built took seven years to build and it was built at the height of Israel's zenith and power under King Solomon. And that took him seven years when perhaps maybe a million or more people was living in the nation of Judah. And now, 42,000 of them are going back. And they're going to be expected to rebuild this temple. We, and we know from Scripture, we know that on the, in, in the day in which the foundation was laid of this temple, the old men wept and the young men rejoiced. So we know this temple is not going to approximate what the original temple was, but it's still a massive undertaking nonetheless. So understand, listen, the, the will of God is, is rarely, rarely easy. I say that some people in this participation, they're gonna be called to go back to inhabit the land and rebuild the temple. I, I think to myself of church planners and missionaries and folks that have, have gone to, to difficult places. 
And I think to myself, that, that couldn't have been easy. I, I, I can't imagine it would be easy today. I can't imagine what it would been like to go two, three hundred years ago. I read several years ago the biography of, um, of Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor, um, of course, was a, a man who was born and raised in England. And he felt God stirring, as we've talked about here tonight, to go to China. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, in, in the days and age in which, which Hudson Taylor lived, 1800s, China was like another world. I mean, literally, you, you didn't just, you know, they didn't have the pictures that we have today and, you know, the videos and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and certainly they didn't have the way to get there quickly. I'm given to understand that uh, Hudson Taylor, of course, set sail for, for China. And as he was there at the port there in England, as they pulled away, his boat pulled away, they said that his mother stood on the shore and that she just wailed and she wept. It was as if, literally, it was as if Hudson Taylor was dying. Because in her mind, she thought, I'm never going to see him again. It would take him months to get there. And of course, a, a journey that takes months would, would, would certainly cost a lot of money and he'd have to carve a life out there. And I'm thinking to myself, how difficult it must have been. Sim- similar, really, in some respects, I think, to probably what God was doing in this pa- passage of Scripture. I mean, the job was, was enormous that God was asking to do. There's a call to participation. And listen, I gotta tell you, in order to do the work that God has called us to, somebody, somebody is gonna have to respond to the call. You know, listen, the whole, the whole church can't sit here and say, well, it's not my job. Somebody else has to go. I'm not gonna do it. I don't know how many Jews were living in, in, in Persia at this point in time, but there had to be more than 42,000. And I'm thankful for the 42,000 that went but what if all of them, including the 42,000, said, not my job. I've lived here my whole life. Somebody else can go. Can I just tell you, listen, listen, if we're gonna do what God has given us to do, somebody's gonna have to answer the call. Somebody's gonna have to do the hard things. I'm thankful for a, for a man like Frank Suglio, who, who, who really wants no part of, of, of being, I mean, he, he was on staff here, served here in this church, and, and his heart all along has been church planning, church planning, church planning. Uh, to me, that, to be frank, church plan is sort of scary. You know, go to a community and start inviting people, and what if they don't come? And, and then, then what? I just preach to my family. You know, I could do that in my house. <laughs> I don't have to have a, a, a facility or a building. And what if they don't give? And, and what, if we, what if we, you know, that's, that's a little frightening. It's a little scary, isn't it? It's hard to do, going to a neighborhood where there's not really a church, begin to, or where maybe there are some churches, but they're not gospel preaching churches. Try to convince them the church that you're in isn't, isn't helping you any. Somebody's got to do it. I'm looking down here, Brother James Pranger. I mean, what, you talk about, you talk at the end of the world, Magadan, Russia. I'm about, about as far away as you can get. I think there's 16 hours behind us, or in front of us, I think, actually. I think that's how it goes. I mean, half the, half the year, snow and ice and cold and a different language and a different culture. And, and, but, but listen, listen, somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to do it. I'm thinking of Brother Ron Jackson. I mean, somebody's got somebody's to minister to these men. Somebody's got to be there to try to let them know, hey, listen, God loves Ukraine. He really does. And God loves the people there. And this isn't about politics. This isn't about who's right and who's wrong. This is about the fact that God loves everybody. God loves the Russian soldiers just as much as he loves the Ukrainian soldiers. You know, they're just doing what they're told. God loves, God loves listen, God, Jesus Christ died for the sins of every man. So what I'm saying is, listen, we, we can't all just sit here and say, well, somebody else has got to do it. No, somebody, somebody has responded to the call. And these, these folks did. And, and why did they respond to the call? Because God's spirit, God, God, God stirred in their spirit. 
God did something here, unusual. But notice, secondly, we see not only by going back to Jerusalem would, would, they, be a, would they participate, but number two, by giving so that others could go back to Jerusalem to inhabit the land and rebuild the temple. So you, you perhaps, maybe you're sitting here and say, you know, Pastor Pete, I really have sought the Lord. I really have asked him, Lord, is there something more that you want from me? And he has very clearly revealed to me, no, you're right where I want you. Well, you still have to participate in this thing. I don't know that I don't know that the people that didn't go that, that didn't go back if they if they really had sought the Lord, but there's no doubt the ones that did, God had stirred in them. He had He had done something in their spirit. He had He had I mean just just there was a stirring there. But the other ones couldn't couldn't just wash their hands and say, Well, okay, I'm good. You're going back, forty two thousand, you're going back, good luck. Hope it hope it all works out. No, what did Cyrus say in verse number four? Look what he says. Let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. You know what Cyrus is saying? Cyrus is saying, hey, those of you that aren't going, you're gonna stay here in, in Persia and you're gonna to continue to live your lives and work your businesses and stay in the homes that you've always known. You, 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 you think you don't have to be involved in this, but you have to be involved in this too. Let the men of his place, let them dig deep and gather some gold and some silver and, and some beasts and some goods some, beside even the free will offerings, let him give abundantly. And can I just say that I, I truly do believe, I do believe that I'm in the center of God's will for my life. I do. I believe this is where God has called me. This is what God has called me to do. But can I tell you, can I tell you that that does not, listen, that does not mean that I don't have an obligation to reach the world for Christ. So how can I do that? Well, obviously I can't go to Russia. I can't go to China. I can't go to these places and live there. I mean, I can travel there and visit them on, uh, periodically. But here's what I can do. I can give so that others can go. And that's exactly what we find here. A call to participation. Now listen, listen. The return, this revival, if there's going to be this revival, if, 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 if the people are going to return, then it's going to be dependent upon the response of God's people. And some people are going to actually get up and they're going to go. While other people maybe aren't stirred by God to do that, but they're going to, they're going to be involved nonetheless. And all of us, all of us ought to be involved in this. Either you're going or you're giving. And that's exactly what we find taking place in this text. I say the work of God is a great work. And here's why. Because everyone can and should have a part. All of us. All of us can be involved in this. You may not share my calling, but you have a responsibility and role nonetheless. I may not share your calling, but I've got a job to do. God has given me a job to do. Some are called to take the gospel to foreign lands, to, to do really, really, really hard things. I may not share in that calling, but I have an obligation to give so that they can go and fulfill what God has called to do. And I just think it's amazing that an Old Testament pagan king by the name of Cyrus leads the people to give, in some respects, almost like faith promise giving. I mean, that's sort of what he's, you know, give generously and sacrificially so that, so that people that are being stirred about going back to the land can do so and do what God's called them to do. And then number three, and we'll finish here tonight. This return, this return, this revival, this return is led by God-called men. Would you look in verse number five? Then rose up the chief of the, say the next word with me, fathers. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. I want to ask a couple questions and we'll finish that. What good is a temple where the worship of God and sacrifices are to be made if there's no priests and Levites to assist? So in other words, you're, and by the way, in, in the Old Testament priesthood was, was, a, was a male office. So what good, what good is it to rebuild a temple if, if we don't have priests 
and Levites who can assist in helping us make the sacrifices. What good is an old, let me ask you this question. What good is an Old Testament construction site without men? Now you're looking behind me. It's sort of a construction site here. Brother Hoffman has sent out the word that on a certain day next week, all the, all the guys that are on staff need to be here. Now, now he didn't ask the church receptionist to be here. That, that's, because we understand that that's, you know, now maybe, maybe some ladies in the room tonight that would love to be a part of that, and you could probably do just as good as I could do. But you understand that these, these men aren't working with power tools and tractors and, you know, and, and earth movers and that sort of thing. No, no, these men are working with tools, they're working with their hands, and this is, listen, this is a job for men to do. And so if the job's going to get done, men are going to raise, are gonna have to stand up and do it. Let me ask you this question. What good is a fledgling nation that doesn't have walls without men to protect its inhabitants. And for all of these reasons, and no doubt many more, God raised up, God stirred up men, chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites to go. To go up to, and obviously their wives went with them, their daughters went with them, their children went with them, their maids and their servants went with them. But understand this, listen, if the work was gonna get done, if what God was calling them to do was gonna happen, it was going to require men to lead. The same thing is true today. If the church is going to go forward, if the world is going to be reached, oh, listen, listen, everyone should play a part, but I believe, I believe God's way has always been that the men lead. I believe that's what God has called. I believe that's what God has ordained. And I find that very clearly in our text. You know, a key charge for a man to lead has always been strength and courage. We find that in Joshua 1, 6 and 7, 1 Kings 2, 2. David is on his deathbed and he says to Solomon, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. It's God's way. It always has been. God stirred up men to respond to the call he had stirred up Cyrus about to lead the way in this return, this revival effort. And I truly believe if revival is to visit our church, if it's to visit our homes, if it's to visit our land, it will come as a result of God stirring and strong men who respond to the stirring. Would you stand with us? We're going to pray together tonight. And as we're being dismissed this evening, let me just encourage you to think about what you've heard tonight. We're not going to have a come forward invitation this evening, but what is God speaking to your heart about? Do you know what God has called you to do? I mean, do you know exactly what it is that God has placed you on this earth for? And if not, why not? What has God charged you to do? Cyrus knew, and he did it. A call to participation. How are you participating in great commission work? What are you doing? Are you going? Got a bus route, Sunday school class. You're soul winning as often as you can. You're using whatever gifts, talents, and abilities you have to reach others for Christ. Those of you that aren't going overseas to another place, church planning, pastoring, whatever, are you willing to give so that others can do this work? Call to participation. All of us can be involved, should be involved in some way, shape, or form. May God help us to do so. And those of you that are men here tonight, oh, listen, we, there, there, has, there has long been a vacuum of male leadership in our world and in our culture. And that may be, that may be in the world, but may it not be in the church. May the men of God, may the men of God lead the way, not marginalizing women, not shaming women, not you know, belittling women. No, no, not, none of that whatsoever, but leading the way in a passionate pursuit of God and of holiness and of righteousness.